fall into the theology bit. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another edition of The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh. This is not like a bottomless pit. It's in a bottomless pit, they say you die of dehydration. That's right, not of starvation. But this is a theological pit. So what we're going to do is we're going to feed your mind. We're going to make sure that your mind stays fed. And I guess water your brain. I'm not sure exactly how that works. But you know what I mean. Um, we've been going over things in the theology pit and I've really been enjoying it pit of conception kind of a question for everyone out there if you want to send me an email at samson at samsonstick.com um would you like these longer theology pits to be its own separate feed from the pit of conception or is it okay that they're all in one feed and and the way that you're seeing them uh, come through because I'm not really sure on how I'm arranging all this stuff and how I'm doing all this stuff, but uh, it has you know, occurred to me that I've seen other podcasters that do many different types of podcasts where the um, pit of conception is smaller little nuggets and maybe you just want something that's in there. So if you're letting them play little five minute you know, feeds... Um, you don't want them being interrupted by a big hour, hour and a half feed that, you know, you have to skip over or, or whatever it is. So, hey, just, you know, shoot me an email. Let me know about that stuff. On the theology pit here, I've been going over the history of salvation, what it means to be saved. Um, and just kind of a nutshell, uh, the approach that I've been taking has been sort of a historical approach. Uh, but I've also been fixing in some modern understandings as well uh, when it comes to faith, those sort of things. We went over two different types of faith in the first one. The fetus qua creditor and the fetus quae creditor. Fetus qua creditor is faith by which we believe. It's the faith that God has given us in order that we can believe. And the fides quae creditor is the faith that we confess, the faith that we believe. So when we say we confess something like uh, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed or something like that, that is the fides quae creditor. And then I took that fides quae creditor and I broke that up as an understanding of faith, that faith consisted of notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Um, the notitia being knowledge, that you have to know about something, the ascent, the ascensus meaning that you have to assent to it, you have to uh, agree uh, with what it is, and then the uh, fiducia is the trust. And so you have to then you know, put your trust in it. And it's an active kind of trust. I don't know if I brought that out so much that, you know, you trust that a chair will hold you up when you sit in it because you've seen chairs before, you've seen the designs, you understand uh, what, what, what a chair is supposed to do, what it does, like, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so the faith that we have is a very active faith in that we are exercising it in that sense. And this faith is not the 
it's not something different than what God had given us. The faith that God gave us is the same faith that we exercise. It's this, think of it as like this capacity uh, to have faith. Um, now, we discussed a little bit in talking about the Gnostics and the Docetists and, and uh, what the um, apostles were saying and what their disciples were saying and how, you know, they were looking at everything, you know, physical is bad, everything spiritual is good, uh, that, that sort of thing to kind of sum it up. And when it comes to this type of faith, we look at faith sometimes um, in, in a Gnostic way. Um, we look at faith as though it is what we cognitively do and not what we act out, where if God created us, as I believe, as body-soul unities, that we have a material part and an immaterial part, and that Christ's redemption is to redeem both parts of us, to redeem us as a whole, well, then the faith that we are given should mirror that in some way. So this faith that we've received is a faith that we exercise cognitively, as well as a faith that we exercise physically. Um, What's interesting about doing this sort of thing with taking salvation as the first step and what I'm, what I'm doing, what I was, what I'm, the theo, theological discipline that I, I love is called systematic theology, but that's not what I seem to be doing here. I'm not systematically walking through um, theology to get a full understanding you know, a complete understanding of everything that systematic theology entails. And systematic theology just means that it's theology where you're deriving your information from all different areas, from all different uh, points of view. So you would look at things like um, creedal histories, okay, the, the creeds of the church. You would, of course, look at the, the Bible. Um, you would look at, which is known as you know, special revelation. You would look at general re- revelation. And even within special revelation, you know, some people would say, well, speaking in tongues and prophets and modern day things like, you know, that are going on, that those need to be weighed. And if they are from God and if they are true, then, you know, that's uh, what we would hold to as special revelation. But there's also reason that's involved in it. There's your emotions that are involved in it. All these different things come in to form this systematic theology. So when you ask a question, you look at it from a systematic way. For example, you ask the question, who is Jesus? You would look at it from a systematic point of view. So you would say, okay, who is Jesus? Who does the world say Jesus is? And you would kind of take that understanding. And then you would say, okay, who does you know the uh, church say that Jesus is? Who does the creeds you know, say that Jesus is? Uh, what does the, I guess that should be, what does the creed say? What does the um, uh, books of the Bible say who Jesus is? What does the Old Testament say? What does the New Testament say? What about just a Johannian perspective? What does John say? All I want to do is I just want to look at John's writings and I want to say, I want to find out what does just John think about Jesus or what do just the gospels say? What does just Paul say? Um, So when you're looking at a topic and you pull all those things together and then you systematize them, you get this bigger overview of, okay, collectively, this is what's going on. This is who everyone says Jesus is. And everybody might not 
agree. I mean, there might be some good and some bad in there, and, and you know, you would have to wade through that, and that's part of the systematic process. But what I'm doing is I am focusing on salvation from more of a historical standpoint, I suppose, but I'm using something called irenic theology while I'm doing it. And that, that means like a peaceful theology. It means that I'm just trying to accurately represent all views, even if I'm opposed to them, as opposed to polemic theology, where you are just, it's like a warlike theology. You're just fighting with everyone. You are fighting with opposing views. You're fighting with people who um, disagree with you. You are more or less putting out condemnation against them. And then there's apologetics also, which is explaining the faith to people outside of the faith. Polemics is only done within the faith. Um, apologetics is done without, but I'm trying to do ironic. So I want you to understand whenever I'm going over um, things like uh, what the Gnostics believe, I want you to see that it's not unreasonable for people to hold to a Gnostic viewpoint at the time period that we're talking about. And hopefully I was able to bring that out in uh, the last theology pit when we looked at their, their worldview, what everybody believed around them, um, you know, all the different influences that came in that would make this very palatable and make you say, oh, okay, I understand why they hold to that. Um, I heard one time that uh, a, a very smart person, I assume, said that um, a sign of intelligence is being able to hold and entertain a contrary opinion without agreeing with it. And a lot of times, I don't know if people can do that. I don't know if they could seriously hold on to opinion, an opinion that they don't agree with, let alone listen to one that they don't agree with, and then be able to articulate that position and defend that position. When somebody can do that and then they say, I disagree with this position, I'm more willing to listen to what they have to say. Um, I've spoken with people who are of a Roman Catholic background and I'm not Roman Catholic and they are used to Protestants, uh, evangelicals, fundamentalists, um, reformers, however you want to say, restorationists. Um, they're used to them coming up and just attacking the Pope, attacking the Eucharist, attacking the perpetual virginity of Mary, attacking all these. They are just used to attacks. And I don't do that. I, I understand where these things come from. I understand why they exist. I understand what they are. And whenever I one time was speaking with a Roman Catholic and we got, you know, on the, on the subject of, of faith and of church and that sort of thing. Um, we were talking for a while and I wasn't doing that. Not only was I not doing that, I was speaking in a Roman Catholic language. I understood the terms. I understood the arguments. I was able to help them articulate. They knew I wasn't Catholic and I was able to help them articulate, um, a lot of their beliefs. And after about an hour, what they said to me was, you know, you, you understand all this stuff. Why aren't you Roman Catholic? And when you hit a moment like that, that's when people are willing to listen to an opposing view because they see it as you are actually someone who cares. You took the time to look into all of these things and from my point of view, affirm a lot of these different beliefs that I have and, and defend them in the way that I, I am. But you tell me that you don't agree and that you are not 
the same as I, you don't hold the same belief as I do, but you understand. Um, why, why don't you understand? And, and they're completely willing to listen. Um, in my church years ago, um, before I took a hiatus from the theology pit and what I was doing, you know, teaching a program where I learned um, how to systematize a lot of things through a program called the Theology Program out of uh, Credo House Ministries. Um, used to be Reclaiming the Mind back then, but uh, I, I would I would teach in this way, and they, they encourage it. It was interesting whenever I, I found them that I was using this method, and then you know they helped me to systematize all the you know all the information here in a uh, a nice presentable way in a way that I'm, I'm not utilizing right now with these podcasts, but, um, but in, in their way, you know, I followed their entire plan and, you know, and in teaching it, I did also, but, um, it's an interesting reaction that, that you get when you're doing that. And I remember talking to a guy, I think he he was a retired pastor and he was somebody who was a, and we'll get into a lot of this stuff later on. And, um, but he was a dispensationalist and um, I, th- I believe he's a Wesleyan Methodist also. And um, we are discussing uh, eschatology, study of the end times, and um, specifically on like the rapture and those sort of things. And, you know, he was saying to me, you know, I have something that I want you to read. I'd like to go over with you. And, and he pulled out a Schofield Study Bible. And I was like, oh, Schofield Study Bible. I was like, that's a really good reference for, you know, uh, dispensational uh, you know, understandings, um, coming at it that, you know, there are different, um, time periods, uh, in, uh, within history in, in the way that God works. And it's, it's different from a, uh, covenantal theological understanding. And he said, oh, you're familiar with this. And I said, oh yeah. And we started, you know, discussing, uh, the rapture. And I think I know, well, I did know, but like six different views. I could probably look them up, refresh myself on them. We we're just talking about the different facets of it. And he said, you, you know, all this stuff and, and you disagree with it. And I was like, oh yeah, I don't, I, you know, I don't agree with this particular thing or that particular thing. And he said to me, he's like, you know what? I want to sign up for your classes. He said, I really do. I, 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 I just have to. And he signed up and he went through them with me and he told me that it was the most fun that he had had in a long time, just going through and being forced to look at theological doctrines from the viewpoint of the people who were articulating them at the time, even if you disagreed with them, but being able to defend it because you get to understand what you believe better by understanding what uh, other people who have come before you believe. As Christians, we believe that everyone is created in the image of God, but that Christians specifically are filled with the Holy Spirit. And by being filled with the Holy Spirit, you're worth listening to. And people that came before you, Christians that came before you, are worth listening to also. So, I mean, I do get excited about the church fathers. I do get excited about like what was going on in, in, the, in history, as you're going to see in um, this, this podcast today. Um, and it just, it, it helps you to understand. Now, what's, what's funny is that when I first started studying this stuff, I mean, probably, oh my goodness, 15, 16 years ago, I really started taking an interest in theology and this sort of thing. And I wanted to study broadly because I wanted to know what people thought, what, you know, um, one of my favorite books that a, um, a Lutheran pastor friend of mine 
lent me out of his personal library. He's a two-volume collection. I wish I knew what books were. I read them and I gave them back to him, and I've, I've been searching for them. I can't find the exact one that I, I was reading. It was, it was an older book, but it was uh, The History of Christian Thought in, in two volumes. And, I mean, I've looked, I have I've a few books on the history of Christian thought, and none of them are the one that I read from him. But at the same time I read that, he also gave me another one on the history of the Greek and Eastern churches. So I kind of got to see the development of both of those, um, and both of those, those disciplines, both of those thoughts, because the East and the Western churches have very different ideas on um, how to go about doing theology, how you go about understanding God. And understanding the psychology um, is extremely important. But while I was doing this, while I was studying, um, I was in, at the time, a charismatic Pentecostal church. And I had transitioned or been in a transition period from that church to a, uh, an evangelical free church. And not knowing what evangelical free was, having, having no clue, you know, it, I, I wanted more information on that. So um, the pastor at the time, I was talking to him and I said, I've never heard of this thing. Like it's evangelical free. I don't know what this is. And he gave me a, a book on church history. So I'm reading all these books at the same time. I'm working my way through them. I think that was a, it was a huge book. It was like, you know, 1500 pages or something. It was, it was, it was quite thick to carry around, but, but I did. And I read it, and I just fell in love with church history. I fell in love with the understanding of doctrines, the formulation of doctrines, the formulation of creeds, the importance of wording. Even though when you're listening to these podcasts, I stumble on my words a lot, and sometimes I say things I listen back to, and I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have. I, that The wrong word came out, and now I have this totally different impression that I've put out there, and what am I doing? And uh, Okay, nothing's perfect, and you're not going to get any perfection from these podcasts, but hopefully they'll be informative enough. But one of the things that was interesting is that while I was doing all this studying and while I was uh, looking at all these different things, I was having people tell me that I shouldn't be doing this. People were telling me, you should not mix doctrines. And I'm thinking, well, I'm not mixing doctrines. I'm trying to understand the different doctrines. And they were just out of it. They said, no, whatever your church believes, that's what you should believe and that's what you should do. And a person telling me this was a minister in an uh, Afri- African Methodist Episcopal church. And you know, he wasn't advocating for it. He was just saying that you don't, you shouldn't stray outside of it. And it's, it's kind of weird to hear that. It's kind of weird to hear people tell you that you shouldn't study, that you shouldn't know these things, you know, because what I'm doing by studying like this and then by presenting um, the, the arguments, by presenting the topics in this way, by presenting you know, salvation in this way, I'm allowing people to come with me on this historic journey and by the end of it, come to their own conclusions on, you know, what they believe the application of the atonement actually is. And I've said before, I'm not arrogant enough to say that I know definitively what it is. Um, but I think that the process going through and looking at especially differing views and, and, you know, where your views come from is extremely important because in contrast, there's clarity. And people have told me you shouldn't do that because people might get confused. It's dangerous to do. You don't know what they're going to believe. 
I've had a lot of students. I don't know if I have one student that actually agreed with me on everything. I mean, uh, my students, depending on the topic, might completely disagree with me. And that shows that I was doing my job and I actually cared about doing my job because I didn't want them to know what I believed while I was teaching them. I wanted, I, I didn't want to sway them as their instructor. I wanted them to wrestle with all the issues themselves and come to it. And again, I believe we're made in the image of God, that we are reasonable, rational beings who actually have the capacity to do this. And when we get into humanity and sin, um, when we get into the anthropology, the constitution of man and the effects of sin, I'm going to talk about how even I hold to a limitation of that. I don't, I don't think we have libertarian free will, those sort of things, but that'll be down the line. That's, that's not necessarily going to be a part of salvation. We are going to touch on it a little bit though. Um, but the important thing is for you know, people to wrestle with it. Now, in the Theology Pit podcast, I'm not necessarily going that route. I'll say what I believe every now and again, and I'll put my own opinion out there, and I'll take my time with a lot of this stuff. I mean, I have a lot prepared for today. I'm not going to be able to get through everything that I, I wanted to get through. Um, this is almost going to be like two podcasts, but I'm, well, they're going to be split up into two podcasts, but it's going to be like one big podcast because... We're not going to touch on a lot of um, salvational uh, applications. We're not going to be talking about um, like the uh, the satisfaction view of the atonement or the governmental view of the atonement because that coming around in like the 11th or 12th century, and we left off in the second and third century. There's a lot of stuff that went on in between there that I think we need to understand that we need to take a look at to say, well, why did they start thinking about these things? Why did they come to these conclusions and, you know, and, and what's going on with it and kind of touch on the faith. Like when it came to the faith aspect, I spent a lot of time going over what faith was and really going against, let's put, I was really going against the notion that faith is a blind faith is kind of how I started the whole series out here. And it almost begs the question of why do we have this concept of blind faith? Why is blind faith so prevalent uh, in the church and with Christians and with, with the world, what the world thinks about Christianity? Because it's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what the majority of the church teaches over the majority of, of, of history. And I kind of understand why the concept of blind faith started, I don't want to say getting taught, but started being leaned towards. And the idea of, you know, well, people shouldn't read the Bible because people were telling me that what I was doing is dangerous, teaching theology in this way. I'm, I'm educating. I'm not indoctrinating. And they said, you need to indoctrinate. And I said, no, adults can be educated. There's not a problem with that. And by them telling me that's dangerous, I said, you know what's just as dangerous as that? Putting the Bible in somebody's hand and telling them to read it, giving them something and saying, this is the word of God and not going over any hermeneutical principles with them. Hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. Um, not, you know, explaining that the reader response hermeneutic is not a very good hermeneutic to use. You know, it's where you sit around in a room full of people and you read uh, part of the Bible and then you go around the room and say, what does it mean to you? 
and everybody talks about what it means to them. And it's like, if you can find a consensus of what it means, then that's what it means where it may not at all. And so this, I think is a good understanding. If you've ever had any of these type of experiences of this, this blind faith or somebody trying to indoctrinate you rather than educate you, um, and, and where it comes from. And a big reason I think that this is kind of ingrained in the church. I don't want to say it's so much a Gnostic tendency because it's all about education when it's, it's not, or, or knowledge rather, not education, but information, knowledge. I think that it's more sincere than that. I really do. I think that people don't have to struggle with their theology if it's just handed to them, if they're just told what to believe. And some people are happy with that. I've had classes where my first class, it was, it was full. There were a lot of people, 50 or more. And then as the classes went on, some of them were figuring out, I'm not giving them a list of this is what proper doctrine is. Here are the opponents. And this is why they're wrong. I wasn't, I wasn't doing that. And they just left. And I, I mean, I, I, you lose a lot of students like that when, when you do, theology in this way and you do talks in this way where you don't allow you know that grace between people that grace between um opposing views that, that grace between you know differing doctrines um turns a lot of people off and they don't want to hear that they want to fight they want to suit up they want to battle they want to armor of god they want to go and they want to attack they want to say um hey here's what this church believes. I want you to look at it and I want you to tell me what's wrong with it. Now, when I've asked people in, you know, former podcasts here, uh, whether it's the pit of conception, whether it's the theology pit to, Hey, send me your, your doctrine, send me your statement of faith, send me your, this, that, or the other thing. Uh, my point of asking that is not for people to send it to me so that I can tear it apart and say, this is what's wrong with it but to help them explain what it means and what it's saying. Cause sometimes it's worded. Uh, it can be clumsily, it can be clumsily worded and it's difficult to understand. I can give them a, a background on what was going on at the time period. What, what were they thinking? I mean, when you read something like the Westminster confession, you need to understand the time period of the 17th century and what was going on when that was being written. Why, they were saying these certain things, why they are you know, really going against the Roman Catholic church and calling them idolaters and forbidding marriage with uh, Roman Catholics. I mean, what's, what's going on with that? That's something that I think people would like to know. I think that they would you know, like to understand. So if you send me your statement of faith, or if you send me a statement of faith, I'm going to give you background on it and, under, and, and explain why they hold to what they hold, but I'm probably not going to tear it apart. I mean, I, I might just say, I, you know, I disagree with this, but you know, if it's not straight up heretical, then I'm not going to, you know, go crazy on it. If it's, if it's, if I consider it a heterodoxy, I may say, you can't say that. Like if people say that, well, this person thinks that, you know, Jesus was not always the son of God that, you know, he, um, you know, he, he became the son of God at the incarnation and that's when the Trinity first happened. Okay. Then you know what? Maybe I'm going to have an issue with that. I'm going to have to expound on that a little bit more. 
but um, if for the most part, that's not the way that I do theology because of my own personal theology that I hold. Um, it, I, I don't think that it benefits to do theology in that way. I really don't. So I, I, let's step into our discussion here. And we, we talked about the recapitulation view of the atonement and the ransom to Satan view of the atonement and what they meant and that Christ had to redo, you know, everything, um, that he had to, uh, live the perfect life that Adam couldn't live. That's a recapitulation view. And that his death on the cross was necessary to, uh, pay. It was a propitiation. He had to, you know, pay, uh, for us with his lives. And ransom to Satan was that he had to pay to Satan. And we said no to that, but there are some, truths with within that that people are kind of holding to. But we have to talk about what was going on at the time. And so that's where we're going to start. Every now and again, I have to stop the recording and take a little slurp of coffee here, just so you don't hear me slurping and a bunch of dead air and everything. But um, so I hope you'll pardon that. So problem that we were having in the first, let's say 200 years, 300 years of the church. So there's a lot of persecution going on. There are a lot of different things going on, internal and external stresses. You were having, you know, bishops being executed. Okay. You had, I think I went through some of the um, persecutions, but you had some stuff where you would have emperors that would come about and the, you get, you're getting problems with Rome at this time, okay? Uh, and the Roman Empire is starting to flounder a little bit. And the emperors are looking for a scapegoat. Uh, when, when Rome burnt in 64, Nero blamed the Christians. Um, well, now a couple hundred years later, uh, you have... A, a kind of a morale breakdown. People, people aren't as impressed with Rome. They aren't as enthusiastic about Rome. They aren't as, oh, I don't know how to put it. They're, they're not as Roman as Rome should be. And there, there's a, a problem with, with morale. People are, are, are depressed. They're in uh, the decline of a civilization is what's going on. And the emperor, um, I believe his name is uh, Decius, um, from 249 to 251, um, says Rain, he, he blamed the Christians for this morale breakdown. Because you got to look at what the Christians were doing, okay? Um, they were ignoring the pagan gods. They were refusing to say that um, the emperor was a god. They were refusing to sacrifice to, you know, false gods, pagan idols. They weren't um, engaging in the pagan festivals, those sort of things. They were having their own feasts. Um, and people were looking at this and saying, well, we have a problem and it's probably the Christians. We have to do something about them. And I, I get the feeling that the emperor at the time was not that convinced that it was the Christian's fault. 
I get the feeling that he was saying, well, the reason why is because, you know, to kind of put it in modern day understanding, Romans today don't have enough school spirit. We're not doing Roman things enough. We need to do more Roman things. We need to uh, Romanize more. We need to, what we need to do is get back to a former practice of the way things used to be. You know, it's like in America, we say, well, the problem with America is it's not like it was in the 1950s. And we just got to get back to the 1950s because that was the good time. I mean, that's when everything was, you know, going perfect and that sort of stuff. So we could just get back and imagine if we decided to get back to that 1950s style through um, litigation. Okay, we decided to get back through it and say people can only buy and make cars like the 1950s. You got to wear clothes like the 1950s. Your technology has to go back to the 1950s. Your understanding. Problem was, when you look at the 1950s, they came off the heels of the 1940s in World War II. Um, the rest of the world was rebuilding. It was not a good time for them. The people in America... The 1950s weren't always the greatest time for everybody. I mean, you were getting a lot of problems in, in you know, in, in the black community. Um, there were all kinds of civil issues that were happening. If you weren't part of the, I don't want to use the word privileged class because that gets thrown around so much in our, our culture, but if you weren't in agreement that that's the way that things should be, then making a transition back to that would be difficult, uncomfortable, and ultimately detrimental. It could be detrimental to you. Well, with the Christians at this time, the emperor wanted to bring back the Roman uh, mores. And what this was, was that Romans would make um, sacrifices to pagan gods like once a year, you know, and they figure a yearly sacrifice like that would be good because people can gather around it. It's what we used to do. It, you know, it will, it will bring people together and it's going to work Christianity out of the mix and everything's going to be great, you know, and if you don't do it, we'll kill you. It's pretty much the option. So you had a, a few things happening. Um, you had some people that would forsake Christianity and go make these sacrifices. Okay. And when they did, so that people knew that you made these sacrifices, you were given a certificate that you, it was like your papers to carry out. Someone stopped you. Do you sacrifice? Are you a Christian or do you sacrifice to these gods? And they could say, oh no, see, I, I, I sacrifice, I sacrifice. Um, there are stories that there were false documents going around that Christians were making, um, you know, fake uh, certificates so that they didn't have to sacrifice. But if they were stopped, it would look like they were. Now, no Christian wanted to make these sacrifices. Okay. They, they did not want to do it. Um, you would have a lot of, um, 
persecution going on at this time because of it. A lot of people's lives were you know, destroyed, were, were ruined. Um, and a lot of people were fearful and they didn't want to defy the emperor openly. I mean, th- think about that. Defying the emperor, emperor of the world, so to speak, um, yeah, what's going to happen? What's going to happen to you? Now, we talked about last time, you know, these great men like St. Ignatius Vaniok and Polycarp and, and uh, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and them, you know, going and being martyred for their faith. The apostles, them being martyred for their faith, for, you know, what they knew to be the truth, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And, you know, they saw Jesus be executed and they saw the resurrection and the kind of empowerment that must give you mentally to see that sort of thing firsthand, to see Jesus crucified and then raised again. And you think that, you know what, if I am crucified or if I am martyred, I will be raised also like, like him. And you see then your disciples after you come up and they watch you go through this martyrdom and hold to the faith. And then they go through it themselves. At this period, we are probably five or six generations away. Okay. This is the type of stuff where it's just like, well, you know, my... My great-great-grandfather, you know, may have seen Jesus, may have seen Paul, may have seen Peter, Andrew, um, may have known Polycarp, okay? You're, think, think of it like this, okay? We're in the, you know, the, between the, the 240s, 250s type thing, okay? A lot of these different persecutions were happening in spurts, in, in time periods, But Jesus had been crucified and resurrected 200 years earlier. 200 years earlier in American history, roughly from today, it's the War of 1812. How much do you know about that? How much do you know about family members that may have been a part of that? Do you even know any family members that would have you know, been alive at that time. I mean, for me, I would have to go back to like my great, 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 great grandfather on, on the Kovach side and my great grandfather. I'm not sure it's, it's kind of hard with the records, but I'm pretty sure he was born in Austria, Hungary and they immigrated over here. So when I go back that far, I'm not even in this country anymore. Okay. At least on on his side, my father's side. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to the Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. 
So these people are that far removed from what was going on. Now, they may, depending on their age, or may not have seen, you know, the, the, these persecutions, these type of things taking place. Some of the bishops may have. And you had a lot of bishops that, that took off, that, that ran. Um, you would have them, uh, some, some of them actually would sacrificed to uh, pagans, some of the bishops. Some of the people did. Now, you would have issues of there being uh, catacomb services that go on during these times of persecution. If you have looked into liturgical worship at all, there's difference between liturgical and free worship. And we get into different types of church governments. We'll talk about uh, that, that sort of stuff in, in our ecclesiology, study of the church. But when... You look at, let's say, um, a Catholic mass or any, any type of high church liturgy, okay, like an Anglican, me being raised Anglican, that's what I'm more familiar with. We would have the procession that would take place in the beginning of the service from the, the back of the church up to the altar. And I was an acolyte growing up and I was a torchbearer. So that meant that I flanked the word of God and the, the cross was in front of it and the, you know, priest behind. And I would, you know, flank almost between, like we, are, we were forming sort of a, a cross, you know, at least a plus sign, if you could think of it like that. I think cross, and then right behind on the sides, you would have two uh, acolytes, the torchbearers carrying the candles. And then, you know, behind, roughly behind them or beside them, uh, you would have somebody carrying in the Bible. This imagery of what's coming down, what's what's professing, you know, what's coming through, because you're coming through the center of the church and you have the um, congregation on both sides of you. Whenever people were doing the catacomb services, the the liturgical practice here is reenacting that because they would have to go into the catacombs. That's where they hid their Bibles. That's where they hid their, their religious writings or documents. They weren't all codexes. They weren't all books. And when we get into bibliology, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that more. They could just be loose books, individual scrolls, those sort of things. But during these persecutions, um, they would try to find um, Bibles. They would go into churches. They try to burn all the Bibles that they possibly could. These emperors, you know, if they did not want Christianity to be around, that's you know, what they would do. So they would take these things and they would hide them among the dead. Now, with this understanding that Jesus is the hope, the life, and the resurrection, and that those who have died are more alive than we are because they are with Christ, and that we are both physical and and, uh, spiritual, material and immaterial, that this understanding of the communion of saints that both alive and dead all make up the body of Christ. And so they would go down there with, with torches and they would retrieve the uh, scriptures and then they would come back up. And so they are walking past all of the saints that had died in Christ before them. And they are bringing the word out through this, through this, these catacomb hallways, and they're coming up out 
of it into the living population and then uh, having their services. Now, while this is going on, you know, all these different persecutions are happening and that sort of thing. In 250, or, yeah, 251, uh, Decius dies. Okay, the emperor dies. And there is a lull period where the persecutions aren't as great. Okay, it starts falling away. People start getting bored persecuting them. And, and you know, it's just, it's not really working. It's sort of working, but not getting the results that they want. So they kind of back off. And what you have then with this back off is bishops who ran away. They came back to the church. Okay. Um, and they came back to the area and they wanted to help with what was going on because the church had split at this point. And the divide in the church was between the people who endured the persecutions for the sake of Christ and those who compromised themselves, those who would sacrifice or those who ran or, you know, that, that, that sort of thing that was going on. So, uh, they, they were called Novantianists and think of them as like a third century form of the Puritans. Okay. They did not want anything polluting the church and they saw this as a pollution and they said, no, it's more important for there to be integrity within the church. People live right. People behave right. Remember we talked about orthodoxy, meaning right belief, and orthopraxy, meaning right practice. They were saying that orthodoxy and orthopraxy go hand in hand, and we need to have people who were right practicing Christians. You can't have wrong practicing Christians in the church because you're just going to have problems. And the other side would say, no, what's important is what's called the Catholicity. Okay. The word Catholic means universal. And they would say, you know, the universal church is those who endured and those who didn't. It's all of us. It's who is found in Christ. I mean, you have to remember Peter ran, Peter denied, you know, Peter did these horrible things and he was still restored. So why couldn't these people be restored also? And the problem came in, you know, this, this sort of started being seen as a little bit of a schism. Okay. It became a, a issue. And I think that this issue of this right practice above this right belief is where you started to see the, the splintering of the early church between what we know today as the East and Western churches. Not only was their theology different, the way they went about doing theology, the apophatic as opposed to the cataphatic theology. Apophatic meaning very, very mistress, mysterious, a, a lot of mystery in it, and cataphatic being very uh, explanative. Um, but you also had this, this idea that, no, what you do is more important than what you say. And you still see this today in um, like uh, Russian Orthodox churches. You can still see 
this this idea. I remember uh, discussing with a woman who is Russian Orthodox one time about salvation, and I asked her. I said, "What would happen if somebody didn't go to church for a couple weeks and then they were hit by a bus and they died? Would they go to heaven?" I mean, I know that the Eastern Church doesn't believe in purgatory. They don't hold to a purgatorial understanding like the the Roman Church does. But what would happen to them? Because they also don't hold to a, um, a, a doctrine of justification with it being forensic, um, meaning that God uh, says that you are rather than a sanative that he, he changes you, which is what they hold to. And my question was, if somebody's not there to receive the sacraments and they're not being changed and they're not being saved, if they've fallen away, how, how long can they be away before they're considered not to be saved? Her answer was, look, there are people that go to church for a lot of different reasons. They might need money. They might need help. Okay? That was it. That was the answer. It was such a disconnect for her, for somebody who claims to be a Christian and did not go to church. That doesn't happen. That's not a thing. That, that's not even a concept. You are not a Christian who doesn't go to church. Christians go to church. That's what they do. It's, it's about this practice here. It's not about what, what you say, your integrity, what you, you know, your, or rather your, your Catholicity, your universality. It's about your integrity. It's about who you are and what you do. And I think we can see this back in this, this third century understanding at this time when it came down to persecution, when it came down to, to brass tacks and what it was. Now, with the Diocletian persecutions that then came in 303 AD, these were the ones that were really bad. This is one where, from the records that we have on just the year 303 and going into 304, I could probably sit here and read the names of those martyred and what happened to them as a background track running behind this entire podcast. There's so much of it and so many people in horrible, horrible, horrible ways. I mean, women being stretched on a rack and having hooks put into their sides and their sides ripped out while their children are held in front of their face and killed in front of them. I mean, it's... It is a really terrible time for the church. People floundered. People denied being Christians. They were, you know, denying. They were denying Christ. They were denying being a Christian. It was a difficult thing to happen. And there were a lot of martyrs at this time. There were a lot of martyrs. Some of these martyrs were bishops. A lot of them were imprisoned and tortured. Not all were killed. The vast majority of them were. Um, some were just tortured, beat up. Some were attempted to be killed, but 
they happen to survive. There's a story of uh, a Christian who was in the military and was found to be a Christian, and he was a very good military leader. So, you know, the uh, emperor just said, okay, well, take him out and, um, you know, just shoot him with arrows. So they did, and they left him for dead. Christians found him, were able to nurse him back to health. And as soon as he was able to, he went right back to the emperor and actually interrupted one of his processions to show himself and to reject the pagans, reject the pagan gods, those sort of things. And then he was ordered to be taken at that moment, you know, and just beaten to death. He had bishops that would be brought up to um, altars, pagan altars, and said, here, you have to sacrifice, put incense on them, sacrifice incense. That's it. Just take a little bit of incense and throw it throw it on this basically pile of rocks in the statue, and you're free to go. How many Christians would just say, okay, yeah, not a problem, I'll do that. There you go. Some of these people in front of the emperor would kick over the statues, just kick them right off. And laugh at him. So I'm not going to do that. And he would have their foot cut off. They hit it with their hand and knocked it over. He'd have their hands cut off, have them tortured and then executed, beheaded, all burned. Think of like the worst things that you could possibly do to a human being. And that's what was going on. That's what people are watching. During this time, there's one bishop that endured this, this type of torture and imprisonment. Uh, for quite some period. Um, And whenever the Diocletian persecutions were, I don't want to say somewhat over, but when he just got bored with doing it, exterminating people in large numbers is very difficult to do. If you've ever studied World War II and you've ever looked at the Nazis having all the power and firepower and everything that we you know, know of modern day today, they exterminated a hundred or, or 10 million people. When you read about it from their perspective, it was a daunting task. It was hard to do. Um, you know, it, you would have soldiers whose job it was to just shoot people all day long to try and find ways to gas people, to do that. And then you have this mess you got to clean up, you know, you have bodies and, and everything. I mean, it's, it's a difficult thing to do. It, it, and it was no easier back in this time. I started growing weary of it, you know, especially when you have people that are just laying down their lives, they don't care. And they're talking back to you every single time. This is not a deterrent. So he splits his, um, splits his empire up gives it to uh, you know, two people. Um, and the one part of the empire kind of kept this going, kept this up. The other part, um, not as much, allowed it to continue, but not as much. And one of the famous bishops is Santa Claus. Now, when I say Santa Claus, people laugh and just say, oh, that's funny. I, I mean, it was Nicholas. It was St. Nicholas. Um, Sinterklaas means, you know, St. Nicholas. It's a Dutch version of it. But, you know, I say Santa because that's who he was. And he would not deny Christ. He would not deny Christ as his, his God, his Lord and Savior. Um, and he truly believed that he was God. And the way that we know this 
comes up later when we'll discuss um, the Council of Nicaea and what I call the Santa slapdown, where Santa went and hit, struck Arius in the face right in front of the emperor at the council. He was actually put in prison again for that. But at that council, just kind of a side note real quick, the people who went through these persecutions are the people who are showing up at that council. They're missing limbs. They're missing eyes. Um, they're, they're crippled for life, burnt, walking in. I mean, they looked like the worst of the worst from a war, stumbling in there, 300 of them, to the point where people said when they saw the procession of these, these bishops coming, they wept at their sight because of just how beat up they were and just how awful they were for, for Christ. And so anybody that thinks that at the Council of Nicaea, somehow Constantine could bully them into making Jesus be a God or saying that he was something that he wasn't or anything like that, or if this is where, you know, people started, it was, it was put in the church law that, you know, Jesus was God and you have to worship him as God, has no idea of what these people went through. These bishops could not be bullied. They just came out of one of the worst persecutions and we're not going to, you know, flounder on, you know, these, these precepts. But before 325 AD, the Edict of Milan was signed in, in 313. Now, what the Edict of Milan was, was um, it was a, a, a document that Constantine um, signed that allowed the Christian faith to be legal because before then it wasn't legal. Um, and you had to have a license to have a religion in Rome. And this, this was unlicensed. It was tolerated, but un- unlicensed. And that's why it could be persecuted so easily. But as the story goes, um, Constantine was in a war against uh, Maxantius uh, or Maxentius. Depends on how you pronounce it, I suppose. And, he had, I don't know if it was, nobody really knows if it was a vision or a dream or what it was of the sign of the Cairo. And if you've ever seen um, a picture of this, it kind of looks like a P with an X over it or an X with a P over it. It's, you know, one's imposed over the other. And Cairo is the first um, two letters in uh, uh, Christ which was the Christian God. And, you know, he knew that. And he had this vision and he told his soldiers, you know, put this symbol on your shields. And we're going to put this, you know, this, this symbol is going to be part of our army. And he attributed that, uh, that war, that, that, um, that win that gave him control of the entire empire to the Christian God. That was in 310, um, I think 311, spring of 311, um, it ended. And because of this, he signed this Edict of Milan, which allowed Christianity to be, uh, you know, to to be a religion, so to speak, to not be persecuted um, in this way. Now, what happened after that is you started getting councils, more councils could come out and discuss some things. Part of the discussions were on what do we do with all the apostates? I mean, people were coming to their, to their bishops, to their presbyters and saying, 
I, I never fell away. These other people fell away. What, what do we do with them? And you kind of ask yourself, well, why are they going to them and why aren't they reading the Bible? And there's a few reasons for that. Um, there weren't a lot of Bible. The printing press hadn't been invented yet. Printing press is a 15th century invention. Um, 15th, 16th century. Um, they didn't have books like that. To get a Bible, you would have to hire somebody to take a year off of work and hand copy it out for you. People don't have that kind of money. Uh, they weren't financing stuff at that time. And you were having issues with the Bible itself and with the you know understanding of what makes up the New Testament. What do we consider sacred texts? Because you had you know different people coming in uh, you know when, when it came into the, the understanding of the canon of Scripture. Uh, Marcion was one. Um, think of the Stoic philosophy, the Gnostic tendencies, everything physical is bad, everything spiritual is good. Throughout all of the Old Testament, kept only certain parts of the New Testament, Gospel of Luke minus the birth narrative, um, and I think some of John, or, uh, Paul's um, epistles. And, you know, people start, Irenaeus argued against him and said, no, there's four gospels, fourfold gospel. I mean, he had like different things going on. And the question was, well, why are they going to them rather than just exegeting it? And exegete means to um, bring out. So when you're studying scripture, you want to see what scripture is saying. You want to allow it to speak. Eisegesis is reading into it. Exegesis is bringing out. And the reason why is because people were reading their Bibles unchristianly. Uh, and people still do that today. This is why we have heresies and problems, you know, today. It was one of the arguments against Martin Luther at the time. Don't, don't do this because if you put a Bible in everyone's hand in a language they can understand, we're going to get splinters all over the, the, the place. I mean, people are going to break off from the church and you're going to get heresy and you're going to get, you know, a million different denominations and, you know, those sort of things. And they were right. I mean, we do, but Luther said it's worth it. Um, so that you know, we, we should do this. But you're having these same problems. But somebody would read something and say, well, I believe that the Bible says you know, this, that Jesus was a created being, that he was you know, um, the you know, only unique son of God, monogenes, only begotten, it's sometimes translated. And so if there was a time when he was begotten, then there was a time when he was not. Uh, a bishop by the name of Arius uh, championed that. Well, I don't think wait, I don't think he was a bishop, um, but he was uh, he, he was up there in the ranks. I think he had to have a bishop uh, represent him at the Council of Nicaea because he wasn't a, a bishop. Um, what he what they were saying was that you need to have a teacher teach you. Um, and this is where you start getting into this magisterial authority. And I know a lot of people can be down on that. And let me just try and justify that for you real quick. Who knows more about Jesus Christ, you or the Apostle John? Well, I'm asking this question rhetorically, but the answer is, well, John would probably know more. John lived with him, okay? John even says at the end of his gospel, there are many things that he did, so many that, it, you know, not all the you know, books in the world could hold, you know, all the different acts that Jesus did. So obviously he did more. 
probably, you know, told those things to his disciples, you know, he would not like the disciples of him would not only have these books and these letters from the other apostles, but they would have the direct teaching. So you look at someone like St. Ignatius of Antioch or Polycarp of Smyrna, and you would say, who knows more about Jesus? Polycarp, St. Ignatius, or you? I have to say, well, they probably do because John probably told them more. And so you can understand how this is going. So now you get, you know, like I said, a couple hundred years later, some points, maybe only 150 years later, but let's just say 200 years later. And people are asking the same questions. Okay. What's interesting is at the Council of Nicaea, one of the things that was um, brought, brought out with the bishops was, um, was this, and I want to read this from my um, second series of my early church fathers writings on the seven ecumenical councils. This is um, from the time of Nicaea. And it said here that um, what the editor is, is showing and trying to bring out in this is that um, they want to call the attention um, of the reader to the fact that this, as in every other of the seven ecumenical councils, the question of the fathers, uh, the question the fathers considered was not what they supposed Holy Scripture might mean, nor what they, from an from a priori arguments, a priori means prior to examination, um, from a priori arguments thought would be um, consistent with the mind of God, but something entirely different to wit, to what they had received. They understood their position to be that of witnesses, not that of exegetes. They recognized but one duty resting upon them in this respect, to hand down to other faithful men that good thing the church had received according to the command of God. The first requirement was not learning, but honesty. The question they were called upon to answer was not, what do I think probable or even certain from the Holy Scriptures, but what have I been taught? What has been entrusted to me and handed down to others? When you look at it in that aspect, because the question that was going on at the time was, was Jesus of similar substance as God or the same substance of God? The words were uh, homoousion and homoousios. Homoousios and homoousios. The difference between the two, homo and homoi, is the letter I, or in Greek, the letter iota. Sometimes we say iota or iota, but if you ever heard the phrase, it doesn't make one iota difference, that's where it comes from. It actually did. It was a huge thing here. So the authority that these guys had as witnesses and people that were exposed to the scriptures, studied them, were, were seen, they were right or wrong seen by the laity as the people that you go to as the arbiters of truth. And they wanted to know, what do we do with these people? Okay, the, these people that did sacrifice um, to pagan gods, that did, you know, do all these uh, sort of things. And this is where you came up with a, they came up with a system of, of penance. And, you know, you can, you can read about those on what people had to do I think there were three or four different levels um, remaining outside the church. 
being inside the church, uh, but not being allowed to participate in communion. Uh, you would have to leave before that would take place. Um, remaining prostrate, um, laying down on your face before the altar the whole time, not being able to watch, not being able to look up, but allowing to remain, and then being brought into um, full restitution. And the problems that you had is that when you read through um, the Council of Ansira in 314, and what they talked about, what they brought about, depending on the translation and depending on the um, uh, the, the manuscript, um, you can get different things out of it. Um, the first canon of some of them talk about how no insane person is allowed to be ordained. And I know you're thinking, well, that should be, you know, unsaid. Or was there a problem with insane people? Well, yes and no. We talked about origin before. And what I didn't bring up was something that Origen did to himself um, that within monastic life, within the monasteries, started to, I hate to say come into fashion, but it sort of did. Origen, and I've read different stories about this, either to abstain himself from marrying someone or from being accused of, you know, possibly fraternizing with um, women that he was catechizing, going through catechism classes, teaching, and then that's another issue also to talk about the importance of um, teaching people doctrine. But that, you know, he castrated himself. And he wanted to do it so that not only could he not be accused, but he wouldn't be tempted. And he was doing this so that his life and servitude could be for God. This caught on and people were doing this. People were voluntarily castrating themselves when they went in the monasteries. They wanted to be after the order of origin. They wanted to do this. Um, believe it not only had to be made illegal um, and people had to be dissuaded because later on, I mean, monastic life catches on so greatly that, you know, you hardly have anybody left. Everybody wants to be a monk. Everybody wants to, you know, be in, in service and, and that it's not that, um, purity as remaining pure as remaining a virgin was, uh, imposed on them, but that they voluntarily, uh, took it. It was, uh, a true celibacy as opposed to what we have today where it's a forced, uh, celibacy within those ranks. Um, but because of this, there is... Sections in um, the Council of Anseer's writings, uh, canons, that talk about um, people who have castrated themselves and what has to be done with them and whether or not they were castrated by um, barbarians through the persecutions, that if that was the case, then they were not held at fault for it. But if they were doing it to themselves, they were held at fault for it. And what the penance was for that, what they would have to go through. Sometimes it could take up to six years for them to be made right with the church again. They would have to go through all this stuff. Um, in that same council, it talks about, you know, abortions, um, you know, or women, you know, helping people have abortions. And uh, I think that it was lessening what it was because I think that they were, in, in some cases, when you have things like this going on, you would have people who were denied communion denied full uh, restitution back into the church for their entire life, except at the end of their life when they were allowed to 
uh, partake of communion again uh, for women who um, aborted their children or uh, helped women abort their children. I think it was knocked down like 10 years um, before you could be made in a, in a right place with the church, right standing with the church. Um, so they had all of these different ideas of, you know, what had to be done with people that were in violation of, of the church. And now it's not so much what had they had to be done was in violation of the church. That's, that's my point, but that's, that's a huge part of it. But you could see the emphasis that is being placed on the leaders of the church. And I want that to come out because of what I said about Nicaea and what we're going to get into in the next theology pit. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to cut this off right here. And I know you're thinking this, what's this have to do with salvation? Trust me, it does. Because when you start getting this magisterial authority in place, these people who are not only the arbiters of, of truth, the arbiters of the scripture, the arbiters of the ones who are explaining to you about God. Um, but this gives them this, this sort of special place that they then become the ones who are, in a sense, closer to God. They are able to distribute the elements. That was another thing that was uh, asked. If somebody received communion or baptism or um, the sacrament of marriage or something like that from a bishop that became an apostate, is it still valid what they received from them? And there are great debates about that. And they, they would say, well, yes, it's the you know heart of the person and that sort of thing. But it's where we get into our understanding of um, ex opera operato by the works performed. Um, and that's why when you get to Nicaea and you get this magisterial authority, they're kind of putting the stamp of approval on not new doctrines or new things they're coming up with, but what always has been, what people hold to. They weren't... Um, saying that we we think that Jesus is the same substance as God because of this, but we were taught that he is the same substance as as the Father, same substance as the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Trinity is is coined in there. Arius's views are knocked to the side. Um, Arius said that you know Jesus was a, a created being whom all things were you know created through. Um, and they were kind of fighting against this. So this understanding of somebody reading their Bible unchristianly, and then there being a council and the people who were discipled by the disciples, um, that they had this, this type of authority. You, I think you can start to see this, a bit of this divide in this kind of understanding of blind faith of why do I have to know what and why I believe what I believe when I can just trust them. And when it comes to the point where we'll, we'll go on from here, um, that they are understanding how God's grace is applied to them and why they are just accepting what they are being given. And this idea of blind faith starts coming into play. I don't think that it was intentional. I think that it's just something that just kind of happened because 
explaining the subtle nuances of everything that's going on is a difficult thing to do. I mean, I've had people listening to this who say that I might say something and then they're, they're listening to, they start thinking about it and then they realize they haven't been listening for five minutes and missed what I said. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of stuff to think about. Um, they don't have the same luxuries that we have to sit around and, uh, and, and think about, you know, these things. So, you know, um, in, uh, in, in 318 is when you get like, you know, canons of the city of nice in, uh, uh, Bithania, um, where that talks about, you know, the castration thing. It wasn't, uh, in Syria, sorry, it was four years later and Syria was uh, a little bit different. Um, and Syria was focusing mostly on what do you do with apostates where, um, uh, nice was uh, one that was a little, little different there. But anyways, I told you I was going to be making mistakes. At least I caught that one fast enough and not in the next, uh, on the next podcast. But, um, you can start to see the seeds now of the importance of having a magisterial authority and the sacraments being administered and the life around the church and, and what is necessary for salvation at this time. And the reason why they're arguing for what exactly Christ is, is because of the recapitulation view of the atonement that Christ for him to recapitulate. And we'll get into this more in the fifth century in the next podcast that he had to be everything that we are in order to represent us. So I'm going to, I'm going to stop here with this theology pit. Um, and this is just over, you know, an hour long, it might be around an hour and 20 minutes by the time I'm done. Cause I always say, I'm going to stop here and I never do. I can't shut up. Um, but I'm going to put a pin right here. And then in the next theology pit, we're going to kind of continue on and we're going to discuss more about, uh, what they were saying about Christ, the the arguments on you know what exactly Jesus was. We're going to get into um, the idea of sin and how it affects us. Uh, we're going to talk about original sin and, and free will. We're going to get into uh, Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, Augustinianism, and we're going to talk about that. So you'll be able to see a little bit more on how these things are going together. And then we're going to discuss more and you, and you'll see that this idea of Jesus being physical is still a problem that's going on. Um, I hope that this was a decent theology pit. It feels kind of like that, that like when you're watching a TV show or something and they have like an episode that kind of bridges from one section to another, that this has a lot to do with salvation in uh, what we believe and who we believe in, but it's not specifically going into a, an understanding of a, a order of salvation, an ordo salutis, that this isn't a uh, salvific uh, model that, that we're looking at. So, um, hey, check out my website, uh, samsonstick.com. Uh, send me an email if you like, samson at samsonstick.com. Um, send a donation. Those are always appreciated. Um, it lets me know that what I'm doing you know, has value and that you, you do appreciate it. Uh, even if it's just, you know, a dollar or a thousand dollars, whatever makes you feel good, um, go ahead and do. And, uh, I am going to shut down this pit. Thank you. Thank you.